This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN Columbia.
or good morning to you or good afternoon, wherever you are, wherever it is, whatever it might be. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit, and I'll be with you for the next three hours, doing it up like we usually do on Monday nights, and it's just a few minutes after 11 o'clock. Okay, tonight, uh, what do we have going for you tonight? My guest is a woman whose name is Doro Meinke, and she is an initiated shaman, and she's uh, an expert on the topic of male initiation, and we won't talk a whole lot about it right now, but we will in an hour from now, so if you're curious, stick around, and I'll give you just one little hint. It won't be particularly about confirmation or bar mitzvahs or that sort of thing, although those things are certainly related to what we will be talking about. All right, also tonight uh, we'll be featuring the music of Jos Van Oost. Jos Van Oost. Uh, Jos is a guy who was here in Colombia a few months ago. I had the pleasure of meeting him through my good friend Casey Oliarnik. And Casey does a radio program here. And it is called Blues in the Night. He's on Wednesdays from 10 p.m. until midnight. And Casey does a segment of his program that's called Open Mic Radio. And when he does that, he brings in musicians from out and about and lets them sit down with him in the studio and play live music. Well, he happened to come across this guy, Jos Van Oost, at uh, one of the open mic shows in town, invited him up to the station, and they did basically a two-hour concert uh, with Jos in the studio here. And Casey, bless his heart, uh, recorded all of it. And I'm going to be playing tracks uh, from Jos all night tonight. Again, independent, non-commercial music uh, coming to you every week here on Radio Orbit. All right. It is um, time to give out information on the website and contact information. Speaking of Radio Orbit, you can always go to the web and check out what's happening with us there at www.mikehagan, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N, mikehagan.com. And you can always send me a message from the website there, or you can do it directly through email, and my email address is orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio, at AOL.com, all right, and uh, while we're here in the station, in the studio, the numbers are area code 573-874-5676, that's 573-874-5676, if you uh, are outside of the 573 area code, all right? Okay, so all that stuff's coming up. Uh, we have uh, great music tonight. We have Doro Meinke uh, and an amazing woman and an interesting conversation we should be having with her regarding the initiation rites or uh, uh, male initiation, the concept of male initiation, I guess, guess I should say. And it's something that is... Uh, not frequently talked about in our country. It's not something that people are very familiar with. So uh, I have a lot of questions for Doro, and hopefully uh, we'll have some uh, some answers that uh, that make sense and help us along in our own paths. Okay. Okay. Thanks for all the email. Hello to everybody who's listening over the web. Thanks to my new webmaster Larry Norager, doing a wonderful job as always. 
And I continue to ask all of you to go out there on the web to MikeHagan.com, check it out, click around, and send me a note. Let me know what you think and give me ideas, questions, comments, concerns. I'd love to hear from all of you who are checking out the web and listening to the show, and I'd be interested in your ideas and your opinions, okay? All right, and with regard to that, uh, if anybody... You know, I do this often enough, uh, but I, re- I, I don't say it on the air enough, but uh, I'm, I have no problem giving copies of the program uh, to people if you're interested in a show that you missed or that uh, one that you particularly liked and you'd like to have a good copy on MP3. Just uh, send me an email or give me a call sometime uh, during a break, and I'd be glad to uh, throw something like that in the mail for you, okay? And speaking of uh, free things for you, there is a wonderful show tomorrow night at the Blue Fugue. A gentleman who goes by the name of Stendek will be playing there tomorrow. And he's a one-man revolutionary band. The guy's outrageous, and I won't say more than that about him. But if you're interested in going to see Stendek tomorrow night at the Blue Fugue, uh, you can give me a call when we take a break here and put some music on. And i got a couple tickets uh, to give somebody for that. And I'll try to remind you uh, about that when we go to our first break here, okay? All right, let me tell you a little bit about some guests that are coming up over the next few weeks here. Uh, As I said tonight, we have Doro Meinke. We'll be talking about shamanism and male initiation. Uh, Next week, Alistair Kinnear. Uh, This is a guy who does um, neuro-linguistic programming. He's an NLP practitioner, and he also has some interesting ideas about a lot of other things. Anyway, I've come across Alistair in another unique sort of uh, meeting and I thought that it was uh, worthy to spend some time talking with him on the program. And uh, basically, it's about um, behavior modification. That's basically what Alistair is about, how to modify your own behavior. And Lord knows, uh, we all have modifications that may be in our best interest that we might not always be able to do on our own even though sometimes we might know that they need to be done. Other times we may not know. Uh, Regardless, uh, Alistair is into helping people make changes in their behavior if they so desire. And we'll be talking with him a little bit next week about how to do that. Now, I'll also be airing next week. We'll we'll only have Alistair on the air probably for an hour or so, maybe a little bit longer than that. But I need uh, to uh, also air an interview that I did a few months ago with Dr. Ralph Abraham. And that will be coming up next week as well. We'll have uh, Alistair Kinnear live with us, and we'll also have a recorded interview from just a couple of months ago with Dr. Ralph Abraham. Of course, uh, Ralph Abraham, of course, is the uh, uh, the chaos theorist and uh, professor of mathematics at Santa Clara or, or uh, UC Santa Cruz in California, and a guy that basically has single-handedly over the last 30 uh, 30 years, changed the face of mathematics. So uh, an interview with Ralph and uh, a live interview with Alistair Kinnear coming up next week. The following week, David Sarita will be talking about UFOs, flying saucers, and their propulsion systems. The week after that, Michael Tsarion. And I'm not even going to talk too much about Michael Tsarion. It's going to be a mind blower when this guy gets on the air. But uh, you can check all this stuff out at the web at www.mikehagan.com, like I said before, and there's information about all of these upcoming guests. 
uh, Graham Hancock, the 19th of December, one of the uh, pioneers in work on ancient mystery. And Graham Hancock sort of originally began his career as an Egyptologist and knows a great deal about the ancient mysteries of Egypt and about the artifacts and monoliths that pepper the Giza Plateau there. Uh, but his understanding and his interests have spread out far beyond the plains of Egypt uh, across the world. And he's written many, many books about his experiences and what he's learned. And Graham Hancock is uh, someone who I'm really pleased uh, to be able to talk to on the program. So that's coming up on December 19th. We've got Mark Pesky coming up. Uh, Char Davies, a couple of amazing people uh, that are interestingly involved in technology. Mark Pesky, for those of you who are not familiar with that name, is the inventor of VRML, Virtual Reality Modeling Language, which is now something that we all take for granted as we use our computers and surf the web and uh, do all of the things that we do with these little children of ours, these technological devices that are at our fingertips now. Anyway, Mark Pesky, a guy who's very influential in how that little child computer of yours actually works. And so we'll be talking with Mark at the beginning of the year. Char Davies, as I mentioned, an amazing artist, an amazing woman. And lots of other stuff coming up as the show moves along. All right? One more time, email address, orbitradio at AOL.com. The phone number is 874-5676. 1-800-895-5676. We'll come back in just a few minutes, and we'll do space weather and talk about some other stories that I've gathered uh, that were of interest, and we'll talk about all this stuff in just a little while, okay? All right, this is Mike, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Radio Orbit, and you're also listening to Yost, <laughs> Yost Van Oost, and Yost is from Rotterdam. You can find information for him on the web at www.josenanita.nl J-O-S-E-N-A-N-I-T-A dot N-L Alright, that's an address in the Netherlands, but it's josenanita dot N-L And you know what? We did all these songs uh, when he played here live with Casey, and I don't know the name of any of them. So this is track number one that you'll hear tonight from Jos Vanost. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Just too beautiful to tell 
Like up and bells on a Monday, blues on a Monday goes together so well. But darling, you can discover the lover in me. I can discover lover in me. You can discover the lover in me. I can discover the lover in thee, and together we can rock and roll till the cow comes home. <laughs> Stuff there, Jos van Oost. Wonderful music from the Netherlands. Actually, a resident of Rotterdam who was here in Colombia just a few months ago playing music live for us here, and you're hearing it again tonight on Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan, and let's do space weather really quickly here, okay? All right, uh, I mentioned last week that there was a big giant sunspot, this group of sunspots, number 822, it was so signified. Uh, it is now sort of decaying and becoming smaller and breaking apart, but it's still uh, a giant, uh, big sunspot, and it can uh, can still be seen, actually, uh, with the naked eye, or if you have some sort of a lens or a shield that allows you to look at the sun. I like to use these um, welder's goggles. I think that's the best thing I've ever used. You just throw on a welder's helmet and you can look right at the sun and you can actually see sunspots and things like that moving across the surface. So anyway, uh, take a look up there with your welder's glasses if you can uh, before 
8.22 fades away. There was one thing that I wanted to mention, though. You know, I look at all this imagery on the web. I love to look at pictures. And there was some amazing aurora borealis northern lights that were going on back around the 19th, uh, just a couple of days ago, and some great pictures of that on the web at spaceweather.com and at Space Daily and at space.com, lots of these different sites that look at the uh, things going on in the heavens. Uh, but anyway, it was just a beautiful display of aurora, uh, aurora borealis. And there's another sort of solar wind stream that's probably going to impact us in the next couple of days. And I expect to see, again, great uh, things in the northern hemispheres. And I'm so uh, pleased that now we get to see these things, even though we live down here in the latitudes of mid-Missouri, where unless the sun gets really wild, uh, we won't have an opportunity to see the northern lights. But we can uh, do that from our own little homes, uh, as long as we have an Internet connection and uh, know where to go. And the best place to go to look for that sort of stuff, or at least to uh, to, to begin your experience and then uh, find other nodes of travel from there, is cyberspaceorbit.com, my good friend Kent Stedman's website. Uh, when it comes to images, he's the guy. And he also knows a hell of a lot about the sun and the stars and phenomena that happen in the cosmos. So check out cyberspaceorbit.com, and then from there uh, you can go to many, many other different places. All right, um, let's see. It was a little bit cloudy tonight, but Mars rising in the northeast, Venus setting in the south uh, as the sun goes down, and, of course, uh, a lovely half moon tonight following r the rising Mars in the sky. And the uh, the stars as they move, and you get to watch them. You know, if you watch these things regularly and you see how they shift in the sky and where they are this week and where they were last week. And it's really interesting because I do much more of that now with the program because I talk about it every week. So I have to make sure that I know what I'm looking at when I'm babbling on about it here on the air. But I've become a much more uh, prescient uh, stargazer. And I really pay attention now when I look at the sky. And I have a little boy, as I talk about on the air sometimes, and my little boy now likes to look at the stars as well and the, and the, and the planets. And as he learns what they are and figures out what this particular constellation is and what that planet is, and that's, that, that's always a really interesting thing to try to describe to a two-year-old, the fact that uh, uh, something that looks like a star is actually a planet. But at any rate, uh, it's really fun to go out and look at the stars and the sky with him, and I learn a lot about it as uh, as we do it and get to talk about it with you guys on the air here. So, Anyway, uh, the space weather page on the website is not quite uh, up to snuff where we'd like to have it, uh, but I'm coming up with a lot of different uh, things to add to the, to the space weather page where it's a place where you'll be able to go any time during the week and find out what's happening in the cosmos above your heads, and not just uh, on these Monday nights when we do the radio show. And as soon as we get that uh, that stuff all together and built, I will let you know. But you can always just pop over there if you're on the web anyway to the um, uh, to the page on the website that says uh, 
space weather. Okay. All right. There is uh, one other thing I want to talk about with regard to space weather, and it's really not weather related, but it has to do with uh, things that fly around above our heads up there. And there is a uh, an ongoing mission for a Japanese spacecraft that has been uh, on a uh, on a rendezvous mission with an asteroid. And uh, it's interesting that over the last year or so, there have been lots of particular missions to go look at asteroids and comets and try to land on them and try to collect information from them. Uh, at any rate, this particular Japanese mission is having some difficulty. And uh, I just thought I'd read a little bit about it for you here, just so you know what's going on. Uh, Japan's space agency said Sunday it had suffered a glitch for the second time on a landmark mission to extract samples from an asteroid 290 million kilometers away from Earth. The space agency said it could not confirm that its Hayabusa spacecraft dropped a small metal ball on the surface, part of a project to collect material from an asteroid for the first time. Uh, anyway, the article goes on a little bit longer, but the bottom line is that uh, they're doing all kinds of wild things up there in space. And the particular reason that they're trying to drop this ball on the asteroid was to mark the point where the spacecraft would, uh, would gather material from the surface of the asteroid. And it would also leave, um, you know, in, 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 in such silly Hollywood fashion... Uh, it's also supposed to leave an aluminum plate uh, bearing the names of U.S. filmmaker Steven Spielberg and British science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke, among, um, among another 880,000 people from 149 countries on the planet. But I think that's sort of hubristic that we go up to this asteroid, we know nothing about it, and uh, you know, just leave our mark with these people that think they're all fancy because they donated a bunch of money in order to make it possible. But at any rate, that's just my opinion. And it's cool that they're up there looking around. The, uh, the asteroid itself that they're investigating is sort of an anomaly uh, by itself. It, it, it doesn't have any craters on it, and it's the first time they've seen a body like this traveling through the solar system that's not peppered with uh, or pockmarked with craters because it should be having impacts with all kinds of different uh, uh, rocks and other interlopers into the solar system as it moves along its way. And so uh, it's sort of a mysterious critter, and maybe that's one of the reasons why they decided to look at it and... Um, but apparently they're having some trouble. Uh, the Japanese uh, are saying that uh, they don't know whether the target market, uh, the target marker landed on the surface. Uh, they say they believe it did because Hayabusa moved to the 17-meter point, uh, which was required after the release. But I've read a number of stories about this particular um, operation, this mission, and there's a lot of contradiction. And I'm not sure. Either they don't know what's going on or they want to make sure that we don't know what's going on. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, it looks like they're having some difficulty uh, with, that, uh, with that spacecraft. All right, it's about 11.30. And I think we'll take a break here. And, well, I'll tell you what. Let's read a couple stories, and then we'll take a break in a few minutes, and I'll get Doro on the phone. Um, but uh, I've got a couple things here from the newsroom 
that I thought I would share with you. And there's one in particular that uh, uh, <laughs> makes me sort of giggle. And I'll read it for you here. I'll just read the... Um, I'll read the first paragraph for you, all right? All of this stuff is available on the web uh, on my website. If you go to MikeHagan.com and just click on the news link, uh, you'll see all my favorite stories from the last week. And I post these things daily uh, with the help of Larry, my webmaster, who also adds his own uh, spicy things now and again. He actually found this great video from Bulgaria of a UFO uh, that was taken in the last couple of days. And I mean, it's just in your face uh, amazing um, that uh, th- th- this video, uh, and you can judge it if you will, but uh, go take a look at that. That's at the top of the news page as well. But anyway, here's a story that reminded me of Canned, one of the guys that does radio here as well. His name is Kelvin. All right, uh, this is from uh, The Nation. And uh, the China Press, actually, I should say. All right, man haunted by sex-hungry ghost seeks medium's help. A man sought the help of a medium after he got tired of a female ghost who wanted to have sex with him every night for the last 16 years, China Press reported. The 34-year-old man from Kuala Lumpur, known only as Kelvin, said he felt very tired every night as the long-haired ghost would lure him into making love with her by appearing in different images. Well, that's the only time I've ever heard of another guy named Kelvin, even though I'm sure it's a very, very, uh, it's probably a popular name, and I'm just living in a closet. But anyway, that song, or that uh, story is for Kelvin, all right? All right, what else do we have here? Oh, here's a lovely one. I don't usually talk about politics, but why not for a minute? Congress uh, voted itself another pay raise, and interestingly that... uh, uh, it happened, uh, and nobody knows about it. But anyway, they also decided to take a two-week vacation, of course. Uh, listen to this. The cost of living increase uh, for members of Congress, which will put the rank and file at an estimated $165,200 a year, marked a brief truce in the pitched political battles that have flared in recent weeks on the war and domestic issues. Yeah, it's easy for them to get along when they're when they're padding their own pockets. So anyway, Congress voted itself a pay raise and then decided to take a two-week vacation. So those guys doing a tremendous job, as always. All right, what else do we have here? Artificial and biological intelligence. Here's a clip from an article uh, from Ubiquity. Uh, If machines with consciousness are created, they would be living machines. That is, variations on life forms as we know them, says Subhash Kak, professor of electrical engineering at Louisiana State University. The material world is not causally closed, and consciousness influences its evolution. Matter and minds complement each other. It's a long and in-depth article called Artificial and Biological Intelligence, but very interesting stuff uh, being talked about by the Professor of uh, Electrical Engineering down in Louisiana State. Uh, Here's a story about the ancient Maya. Royal Massacre Site Discovered in Ruins of Ancient Maya City. This is uh, from Washington. 31 assassinated and dismembered Maya nobles have been found by a team of Guatemalan and American archaeologists in a sacred cistern at the entrance 
to the sprawling royal palace in the ruins of the ancient city of Cancun, capital of one of the richest kingdoms in the classic Maya civilization. Uh, they're guessing it's between eighty uh, three hundred and eighty nine hundred, some twelve seventeen hundred years ago. Uh, located in the Peten rainforest of Guatemala. Now, the way the article starts out is deceptive uh, as usual. It says, 31 assassinated and dismembered Maya nobles. Well, I, I, I assume that they can tell that they're dismembered. And there's reason to believe that they're nobles because of the things that are found with them. Uh, but uh, there's really no way to know that they were assassinated. And many of the assumptions that we make about these ancient cultures uh, are just our projection of what we think they may have been thinking. And the Maya, certainly a mysterious, mysterious culture to us, and many of the, uh, many of the things that we find there uh, are misdiagnosed. <laughs> and I don't think that we really have a full understanding of what was going on. So whenever I read articles that just make statements like that, that they just uh, have factual ideas, that they know exactly what was happening... I always uh, try to point that out, that there's still many, many mysteries about what was happening in the deep past. And uh, it's always an ongoing investigation and an ongoing mystery uh, to try to figure out and put the puzzle pieces together as to what was really going on. And I'm not sure that we ever really will. All right, uh, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. And we're going to take a little bit of a music break here. I'm going to get... My guest, Doro Meinke, on the telephone with us, and we will move the show into the night. A little bit more music from Jos Van Oost, and I'll be back in a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Why don't you play us a tune? Okay. Cause you won't any water, sugar in your tea. Why are these crazy questions that you're asking me? This is why this party ever could be. Don't put out the light cause I just want to see Mama told me not to come. Said it ain't no fun. Mama told me not to come. Mama said it is. Radio is 
live it was live when he played it I guess I should say and again that came compliments of Casey Oleonic doing open mic radio every Wednesday night from 10 until midnight and he captured that stuff a few months ago and it is brilliant and I'm so glad to be bringing it to you guys tonight and if you're interested in the music of Yos you can check him out on the web at www.yosnanita.com Dot N-L, and I'll spell that for you. It's J-O-S-E-N-A-N-I-T-A dot N-L. So that's Yos N Anita dot N-L. All right, and uh, speaking of the web, I just got my guest for the evening on uh, the phone with me, and you can get a leg up, so to speak, if you want to jump on the web and go over to either my site at MikeHagan.com and just click on tonight's guest or this week's guest, I guess I should say. Or you can go directly to Doro's site, and that is fire-heart.org, or .com, I guess it is. I'm sorry, it's fire-heart.com. And again, you can get there directly, or you can get there from uh, the Mike Hagan website, all right? And there's lots of information there, some of which we'll be touching on tonight. And... uh, if you want to get a little bit of information about Doro before we start to talk, you can go to the web and check it out. Okay, again, one more time, that's fire-heart.com. All right, there are a couple stories that I dug up in the last couple of days that are sort of relevant to the conversation that Doro and I are going to have. And I'll read a little bit about these things to you here tonight, uh, right now. All right, this one came from my friend uh, Henrique's site at Red Ice. .net. And again, that's another one with the dash in it, red-ice.net. And this was written by Michael Goodspeed. And the title of it says, The Only Way Out is Through the Bottom. And if you want to read the entire article, you can go to my news, uh, you can go to the, the, uh, the news section of the website and read the entire article. But here's just a snip from it, okay? Children are taught that sadness and grief are emotions to be avoided. Tears bring admonition from parents who instruct their kids to stiffen their lips and wear a happy face. Many children carry this conditioning into adulthood. Men in particular view crying as a sign of weakness and even femininity, 
Some men go their entire adult lives without shedding a single tear. Emotions, both positive and negative, are deadened with anesthetizing distractions, alcohol, sex, sports, drugs, ambition, and a plethora of entertainments. Uh, but tears are an essential ingredient to good emotional health. And you can read further at redice.net or over at uh, my site, mikehagan.com, and go to the news page. But yeah, uh, certainly most uh, men in this culture do feel those uh, those ideas, I think, pretty strongly. Maybe not all men, but certainly many of them uh, view crying as a total sign of weakness and would never consider. Uh, they don't like to do it at all, much less uh, do it in you know uh, around anybody else. And I'm as much to uh, uh, you know I'm I I carry that baggage with me as well. I mean, I'm not a guy that just goes around weeping in public, you know, or something like that. And it is something that I think. Uh, most of us men uh, consider, I don't know, something that uh, is shameful almost, or uh, certainly something that uh, shows weakness. So, not that it really does. It's just the way that we're enculturated. It's just the way that we're indoctrinated uh, as children to believe these things. And man, it's like an imprint. And when you're told that your whole life, and it's reinforced over and over and over again as... Uh, you know, as you as you grow older, well, those things just become a part of you, and it's very difficult to uh, to reverse that programming. It's not impossible, but it's certainly uh, uh, certainly challenging. And a lot of people are not up to the challenge, or don't even care about it. They're not even interested in uh, not even interested in uh, in considering that. So, anyway, got one more story here that I will read, and then we'll play one more piece of music at the top of the hour here, and then we'll come back with our guest, Doro Meinke. And we will talk about shamanism and male initiation and uh, how important these things are that somehow have been lost uh, in our culture. And maybe we can learn a bit, little bit about uh, about bringing some of them back in our own lives. You know, if and, it, and it's a decision that you're going to make personally. It has nothing to do with me uh, or anybody else. It's a decision that you make personally. But my... Um, uh, my job, I guess, as I see it sometimes, is just to put the stuff out there and let uh, let you hear it and analyze it with your own mind, your own consciousness, your own intelligence, and then use it uh, to your own benefit as you see fit uh, or not. Okay. So anyway, all this stuff coming up in just a few minutes with Doro Meinke. All right, one more story here, and this one is actually sort of funny. Uh, but it's really not funny at all. And I imagine that that Dora will probably have some comments about it uh, if she's listening um, when, uh, when, when we talk. But anyway, the title of the article is called It's a Man Thing. And I won't read the entire article. It's pretty long, but I've got some sections here highlighted that I'll read to you, all right? All right. Stagnites used to be a few drinks with the lads. Now it involves a European city and days of debauchery. But don't worry, girls. Apparently it's all part of an ancient initiation into manhood. Like the sacraments that baptism or the last rites once were, the stag weekend has bullied its way into becoming one of modern life's essential rituals. 
what was in my dad's day, a simple night out on the tiles, has cancered into a four-day marathon of debauchery in some faraway city of sin. An estimated 70% of stag weekends are now held abroad, with Dublin, Prague, and Amsterdam among the most popular destinations. The demand has become so great that scores of companies with names such as Last Night of Freedom have sprung up to cater for the spiraling organizational requirements. So why is this most basic of rituals ballooned into a monster weekend abroad? Maybe the fact men getting married old, maybe the fact that men are getting married older these days has something to do with it. The average age of marriage in England and Wales was 31 in 2003 compared with 26 40 years ago, which means that some of these men have a lot more disposable income and can afford an exotic weekend rather than just a Saturday night, Saturday night out. Uh, we are also generally better traveled and therefore more adventurous these days, the author writes. But regardless of where we do it, the thing that really puzzled me was why we put ourselves through it in the first place. I had some civilized discussions about all this afterwards, and it was suggested that maybe the modern stag do was an increasingly insecure and desperate expression of all of these old ideas about male identity at a time when these ideas are in crisis and the goalposts in the battle of the sexes are shifting. The flip side of these descents into debauchery and expression of the same process would be the new man kind of stag do where everyone goes off and does things like archery or rafting without the strippers and the pints of vodka. <laughs> Uh, something tells me that the, non, that the non-alcoholic stag dues are a contradiction in terms, however. They are a minority sport because most men revel specifically in the unwholesome aspects of the experience. That's the point. This is how stag dues fulfill its function in the modern expression of a basic psychological process men throughout the ages have always needed to go through. And then he tries to explain uh, what he's talking about here. And let me just read a little bit more from the, from the tail end of this article. Which brings me around to the most revealing characteristics of the stag weekend ritual. Uh, our stag, it has to do with humili- uh, humiliation. Our stag had to walk around with shackles on his ankles, chained to his best man, and then put on a scuba diving kit and go for a swim in the town square fountain, which to my great surprise earned a big cheer from the locals. The whole idea is that the worse it gets, the better it, e- the better it is. That's because all rites of initiation into manhood are ordeals or endurance tests, from an Inuit shaman being buried up to his neck in snow and being left in the freezing cold for days, to masons having nooses tied around their necks and climbing into coffins. The stag do is fundamentally no different, the underlying principle being a universal one, to degrade and destroy the young lad in order that the man, in this case a husband, uh, can be born. A strange collective consciousness energizes and emerges, and everybody eggs each other on to push things toward the crisis point. Something profound is being expressed, I'm sure. It's just that in this case of the stag do, the effect is not achieved by mystic trials, but by the rituals of heavy drinking, gambling, whoring, and humiliating practical jokes. So there you have it, the stag do, the dirty, messy, uniquely modern expression of a profound age-old mystery. Just don't tell your girlfriend. And it really is interesting that uh, 
that the stag party, this sort of thing, it's like a descent into the underworld when you actually uh, look at the way male initiation took place with our ancestors. And in some of the uh, indigenous cultures, nature-based cultures, uh, that are still, although few and far between, exist on this planet today. So we'll talk about much of this uh, with my guest in just a few minutes. Her name is Doro Meinke, and you can check her out on the web at www.fire-heart.com. And we'll be uh, back in just a few minutes with her, okay? In the meantime, a little bit more from Jos van Oost. Wonderful music from Rotterdam in the Netherlands. And again, I don't know what this is called, but it's good stuff. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Doro Meinke. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Yeah. Is the board game? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah.
looking for me, baby, I'll be Mike Hagan, you're listening to Radio Orbit, and uh, here we go. Let's uh, get things going with Doro. My guest is a native of Germany, although since uh, about 1997 she has been living and working in the San Francisco Bay Area. She is initiated uh, into the shamanic tradition in a classical way, uh, through something that was called the Transforming Rebirth Experience. We'll talk to Doro about that. Uh, she's a full Mesa carrier in the more than 10,000-year-old tradition of the Peruvian Inca. Uh, much of her, or at least part of her shamanic experience, is published in the book Krafttiere, Boten die Gürten, Power Animals, Messengers of the Goddess. And uh, she works with clients in her own practice, has so since 1994. She's teaching uh, workshops and seminars in Germany and the U.S., and she is also researching uh, for her first book that is uh, about male initiation, and that's going to be a significant part of the conversation that uh, that we have tonight. So without uh, further ado, my uh, great... Welcome, and so pleased to have you. Doro, Mikey, thanks for being on Radio Orbit. Hi, hello. Good evening, Michael, and thank you for having me in your program. Well, you're welcome, and uh, I'm really pleased to have you here. It's funny because we've, uh, uh, I'm, we're, we're both uh, friends with Michael Heisen, and uh, Michael mentioned you to me a long time ago, just sort of in passing, not on the air, but in a conversation that we were having off the air, and mentioned that there was... Uh, you know, this woman who uh, uh, he had a great deal of respect for and that he thought that at some point I might talk to. And, you know, we really didn't, I didn't think a lot, lot about it, but eventually uh, it came together. And uh, so here we are tonight, and I'm really, really, really happy about it. So Yeah, me too, and I'm really excited. I listened to the article that you read, 
before the music started, yeah. and I think I can provide the listeners and you with some interesting inspirations and maybe answers. Yeah, well, I, I tell you what, let's, um, since that article is sort of fresh in people's minds, maybe, why don't you address that a little bit right off the bat, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about you and where you come from and your background and how you sort of came across um, or how you came upon your, your path, I guess. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about yeah. that article first a little bit. Yeah. Um, I cannot tell you too much about it right now because that would mean that I would have to go deeper into male initiation. But I can tell you that I found out why it has to happen the way it has to happen and what exactly has to happen to make an initiation an initiation. And this means so, for, en- for any man. For any man, yeah. So that will give us answers and insights why men do these kind of things and why it is a necessity rather mm-hmm. than a choice. So in other words, the, 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 uh, the story that, we're, that, that I just rela- relayed in that article about, about men that running around the world and just uh, getting wild with one another, mm-hmm. that's, that, that's sort of a natural instinct, but it's, but it's uh, uh, through the lens of the culture that we live in, that's why they do the things they do? Or? No, I would say that these men who do that, for sure, have done a great deal on personal work on themselves and got in touch with their bodies because mm-hmm. the body tells you what you have to do. But I will go into detail about that later. Mm, interesting. All right. Yeah. So sort of, sort of the counterintuitive uh, thing that we've been brought up exactly. with, actually. Okay. All right. Well, good. Well, let's um, let's uh, let's do that then first. Let's talk a little bit about you and okay. uh, where you come from and how you mm-hmm. came into the work that you do today and how you kind of got into your path. Because I know you have a pretty interesting background. So. <laughs> yeah. So I started my professional career with studying social sciences in Germany, and then got into journalism. And I worked for quite some years as a journalist Mm -hmm. in Munich, and then moved on into public relations, worked for one of the biggest um, advertisement agencies in Munich in the field of public relations for customers like the German Museum Mm. or the... uh, Paddle steamer fleet, the world's biggest and oldest paddle steamer fleet. They are located in Dresden, not on the Mississippi River, I <laughs> think. And while I was doing that at the age of 30, I had a, yeah, I don't know how to call it, a near-death or a rebirth experience. Okay. I had an accident and I went through a death experience. Hmm. At that time when it happened, I was absolutely clear that I'm going to die. And I let go of everything. I totally let go. And I thought, that is it. And suddenly found myself traveling through a tunnel, and at the end of the tunnel there was a light, and that sounds familiar to you, I guess. Mm, yes. And um, the light itself was like a living entity, and it was pure love. Mm. And I did not crash at the end of the tunnel, but I merged with this light, and came out reborn. I was, after this experience, not the same person. What my friends that know me now for more than 25 years will confirm to you who knew me before and after that experience. It transformed me completely, totally and completely. And I got in touch with things that happened to me, like 
I could touch a person and her disease just went away. Or I could ease pain just by touching people. Or I knew things that I impossibly could know, like things that are verified now in quantum physics. Mm. Um, I was in a blissful state for about six months, and and I was never the same anymore after that experience. Doro, this happened again when you were 13? 13. Three zero thirty. Oh, when you were thirty. Okay. Yeah, okay. At the age of thirty. Interesting. So you were already an adult and someone who who yeah. who was already established in her sort of uh, lifestyle and career and all those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So I can say that the path called me. I was called into this path as a journalist. I still have that curiosity and I want to understand why things happen the way they happen. So I started looking around and doing some research and um, found out that there are people called shamans who had similar experiences that were either induced or it happened by coincidence that they got sick and went through a near-death experience and then came out empowered with healing powers and wisdom and then being initiated into the shamanic path. So I started looking for teachers. And I studied for many years with the Foundation for Shamanic Studies uh, with Michael Harner, who is an anthropologist yes. and located here in California. But he has, uh, how do you say, offices. Please excuse me. Mm. I apologize when my language has flaws. So be patient with me. I do my best. But well, you know, it's, it, <laughs> language is a big part of this whole play that we're in, you know. And, and unfortunately, all of our language is flawed. I'm in good company. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. And, um, yeah, Michael Harner. Um, and then I started studying with Steve Gallegos. Mm-hmm. Gallegos is a professor for psychology, and he created founded the personal totem pole process, a very fascinating work where um, you go into deep trance and then you are guided into imagery. And it's based on a combined method of the chakra system, Mm -hmm. um, shamanism, and Jung's psychoanalysis. So what you basically do, you discover that in each chakra you have at least one animal located, a spirit animal, where you get in touch with and that reveals to you uh, the issues that you might have in that chakra. Mm. And the chakras, they touch body, mind, and spirit, all these levels. Give us an example, Dora, of, a, of, a, of a, uh, an animal that may be in some way represented through one of the seven chakras in the body and what that animal... In other words, how the message is translated and how you might learn from that animal, how you might uh, learn something. Yeah, I can give you a personal experience. Yes, please. That I had, for example, a horse in my third chakra. Mm -hmm. And I had it. Now, how did you determine that? So what, what happens is you get put into a deep relaxation. You get the guide who guides you through your journey, relaxes you deeply. And then you go with your awareness to that chakra. You just feel the place in your body where that chakra is located. And then you call in the animal that is living in the energy of that chakra. And spontaneously, you will have a visual image. 
it might be people are different. Some people are more acoustic. Some people just know. Some people hear a voice, and some people are visual. Right. But however, it appears to them, the first image that comes or the first impression that comes, you stick with this. So in my case, it was a horse that showed up, and the horse told me it was a beautiful, beautiful horse. It was wild and beautiful, just full of power, and I admired it. And it told me, tame me. Wow. And I didn't want to tame it because I didn't want to break its power. And then it raised. And it threatened me hmm. with its power. It tried to trample me into the ground, and I was scared. When you are on these journeys, it's very real. The experience is very real. Yes. And it is what we do, actually, in these journeys. We create, we recreate our own mythology. So then I had an insight that this horse needs to be tamed. And it advised me exactly how to do that. And I did what it told me to do. And then it told me, now guide me. And I said, but I don't know where. We were standing in the prairie. There was no path. And it said, you know, just start walking. The path is created while you walk. Hmm. So you get deep insights and you tap, you tap into your own wisdom and ultimately into healing with this kind of work. And you might have every person is very unique and different and has different animals in their chakras, but... When you envision the chakras like one above the other, you see that when you place animals in these chakras, they communicate to you. That way you communicate with your own inner wisdom. You create your own personal totem pole. Mm. That is how the animals create your personal totem pole. And that way you get in, back in touch with your own inner truth, your own inner power. You can induce your own healing. You go processes that might be painful, you might find in one chakra a wolf that is trapped mm. and malnourished. So you start taking care for it in your journey and then the wolf starts blossoming back into its power and at the same time you regain your own power and okay. you start your healing process on all levels. So it's a beautiful, beautiful work. It's not um, purely shamanic work as it is taught in the foundation or as I was um, trained with uh, Alberto Villoldo and the Healing the Light Body School in, and uh, the initiations into the Inca traditions, what the old ancients did, the shamans all over the world, it's, um, it's derived out of three certain approaches and combined. It's a beautiful, beautiful work. Well, so yeah. I graduated with Steve Callegos in that work mm. and worked with clients very successfully. Right, and, and there's and a... Work too. There's a union aspect to that as well, right? Yes. Because I know that Gallegos was, was influenced pretty heavily by, by Carl Jung. By Carl Jung, as I said, exactly. And that um, is part of his work, Carl Jung, um, the chakra system, and um, the shamanic approach with the power animals. Right. Yeah. But you do not travel outside your own aura if you want. You stay within your own sphere. As a shaman, you go out and you travel hmm. in journey. That is not what you do in that kind of work. I see. So that was one of the trainings that I did for three years. And then, as I said, I trained with the foundation and with Alberto Villoldo and his Inca shamanism in his Healing the Light Body School. And that's 
what I'm doing with my clients. I did training in dream work, and I had some training with overtone chanting, which is very mm. powerful, too, that you can apply in workshops or in personal healing sessions. So it's a blend of all these methods that I'm doing in my own practice. And at the same time, I'm teaching basic workshops. My, you know, my intent behind it is to self-empower people. Mm. There are, rather in Europe, I have found, than here in the United States, many people that have turned away from the church, from an authority telling them in what they have to believe, Right. And now looking for some guidance, but the guidance is inside. Hmm. And with my work, I can open the doors for them to that kind of self-empowerment. And, yeah, it's a beautiful path, oh, and I love to do it. Yeah, and and uh, you you relay it beautifully. I love, I, I love the story about the horse. It's just an absolutely beautiful story because mm-hmm. it... Uh, it calls upon you to to uh, to actually do something and to take action in order to make in order to bring the symbiosis Absolutely. thing thing to to fruition. Yes, and what you learn too is what many of us have lost is to develop back or redevelop a deep trust in ourselves and start to treat ourselves again mm. with more respect and understand ourselves as multidimensional beings, you know, not as isolated human beings, but as connected with the whole universe that way. So, yeah, I really love what I do, and I feel very blessed that I can do that kind of work. But it called me. It was my choice. Let's let's talk a little bit about shamanism Mm -hmm. uh, for for a few minutes. Uh, it, it, It can never... It can never be talked about enough, as far as I'm concerned. So every time I have the chance uh, to to discuss it, um, I, I like to take the opportunity. Even though some of my uh, listeners may be familiar with the general concepts, there are, there are always new listeners, and always people that uh, that can you know myself included. We can always learn more about these things. So let's talk about shamanism, and uh, if you could even the historical roots, and, and certainly your experience was a typical uh, uh, sort of shamanic birth. In other words, there's usually uh, so- something that happens like that, a, a, an accident or, or, or a psychological breakdown or a sickness that uh, is really, uh, re- really bad or something. But interestingly, it also, and correct me if I'm wrong, but oftentimes it's, uh, it's more a child uh, than, than, than a grown uh, person, or is that uh, is that a misconception? I think in ancient times, or even right now, still in tribal settings, there is another way to get your call into the shamanic path by being chosen by a shaman. Hmm. And so they go and pick children where they see the gift yes. and take them on as apprentices. So yes, that's right, but. I don't know if this is, if we have the the framework to do that in our civilization. Mm. I know that many people in their adult lives get into it, but that they already as children were different mm-hmm. or perceived as different, mm-hmm. maybe as dreamy or, you know, 
for example, I remember when I was a little child, I grew up with my grandmother, I always perceived a white horse standing in the corner. Hmm. Again, the horse reference. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and um, my grandmother just dealt with it beautifully. She gave me a piece of sugar and said, okay, go and feed the horse yeah. and ask it for its name. Uh, but nowadays, if a child might articulate that kind of perception, it might be told, that's only fantasy, forget it. Right. Yeah, right. that's not real. You are a great dreamer, you have a, a vivid fantasy, but it's not real. So we get, how shall I say, disciplined out of it. We, mm. we are forbidden, children are forbidden to take these perceptions seriously and stay intact so we get broken very early hmm, interesting yeah yeah there's there's definitely the you know and it, and it doesn't take a child long it doesn't take them many times to be told exactly. oh quit being a silly heart and quit yeah. you know quit, quit because they realize that they they don't like the reaction they get from their primary models yeah. all we want to do is belong right yeah, right right yeah. So we adjust, and then we close our doors, our windows of perception. And that is what I do in my trainings, in the workshops. It's the biggest harm to, how shall I say, help people remember Mm -hmm. and help them to be aware that their perceptions never left them, but Mm. that they simply learned to ignore them. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Yeah, it turns out out that... uh, uh, Becoming an adult, half of the deal in this culture is unlearning yeah. what you uh, what you were taught, uh, you know, all along the way. Yes, right. Very interesting. Okay, so for so for people who are interested in shamanism uh, as a as an as an historical uh, uh, religion, really, I guess. I, I mean, it's sort of like the basis or the root of all religions, in my opinion. Yeah, you can say that. Um, but t- talk to the audience a little bit about the shaman, him or herself, and what the role of the shaman is mm-hmm. in society. Yeah, um, shamanism itself, I would say, is, a is the oldest spiritual practice in humankind. And what is so fascinating about it for me is that it developed cross-culturally everywhere in the world in the same way. So it's something deeply, deeply human. It's transpersonal. It is independent from culture and epoch or time. It just evolves the way it does. And the practices, the core practices, are the same everywhere in the world. The way the shaman is perceived, the shaman always belongs into his tribe. What I'm doing here is, you you can name it crippled, because I'm a shaman without a tribe, right? The shaman is, if you want, the one who creates a ritual in the tribe or creates everything on the spiritual level that keeps the tribe healthy, the people healthy in the tribal setting and creates tribal ritual in which people celebrate their way. The shaman in society, in a tribal society, in a tribal setting, is responsible for all the major things that happen to us in life, like birth, Mm -hmm. marriage, initiations, death, performs the rites of birth, the rites, the death rites, um, performs rituals for cleansing, 
is the link between the unseen worlds and our world mm -hmm. that we live in is um, the mediator between the right. spirit world and our world as we perceive it. And, and let me ask you something about that because mm -hmm. certainly there is this component that is ritualistic in nature, in other words, yeah. it, it, that, that, that addresses sort of the spiritual side of things. But there's also uh, more of a mundane side as well. In other words, who stole the chicken sort of thing, <laughs> you know? Uh, the, the, the shaman can also, um, in other words, the shaman, it seems to me, plays, takes the place of all kinds of different yeah. things, like not only a priest, uh, but also... Uh, you know, may, maybe a doctor and yes, also a teacher healer, and yes. also all of these yes. many different roles. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, each shaman, I could, for example, imagine be in a tribe with ten other shamans mm -hmm. who all have different abilities. Right, right, there right. are people, you know, they are able to track down and the shaman's qualities were in ancient times necessary in order to uh, guarantee survival with what they were doing or what they are capable of. Right. There are shamans who are great trackers. They mm. can, for example, track down a herd of prey animals that the tribe needs to hunt for somewhere um, far away. And they can tell you exactly where this herd now is and sends the hunters to go. <laughs> so he provides the food for the tribe. Or if um, people get sick, of course, the shaman is the healer. Yes. The shaman is like the glue that holds it all together. Yeah. And the and the other thing I think that 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 we should talk or that we should at least mention and it's almost like a side note but uh it works. Yes. <laughs> I mean that's what yeah. people you know people have this idea that it's just this sort of uh primitive paint yourself blue and dance around a fire mm -hmm. but I mean yeah, I know. Th you know the this has efficacious force in the physical world. And these yeah. these men and women uh, come back from the places that they travel to, and I mean that in a, a metaphorical uh, spiritual sense, mm -hmm. on, on these vision quests, etc. And they have information that's valid and relevant, and, and it's unquestionable. Yeah. I can confirm this with my 17 years of personal experience and practice. I could bring now a lot, a list of uh, examples that would give you some idea in how this works. I have been basically working in the healing field rather than tracking prey animals. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, as you say, so, everybody has their own thing. Exactly, yeah. So mine is restoring balance. Wow. You know, in people and empower helping them facilitate when i say helping it disturbs me a little bit mm. because that puts me in a hierarchical structure right. above somebody right. that's not how i see myself so i meet people as teachers my okay. clients are my teachers too and i rather facilitate that process with what i'm doing than helping them okay. you know. <laughs> well you know and, and i mean that's the maybe that's the, the one of the things that separates or the or that uh uh, that distinguishes the shaman from uh, another, maybe a, a position of power in uh, in in a different sort of culture, is that the ego is at least 
I won't say that it's that it's gone, but it, but it, but it, but it becomes more and more minimized, and so you realize that it is always a two-way street, and there is always the connection with the other, and the, and there's a reason that that person is in there uh, for them, but also for you. It's sort of like the animal story that you told earlier. Yeah, you have to become an empty vessel, <laughs> and you have to be as clean as possible. You know to Stay out of the way in order to be of service and get the information through. That is why I say you're a mediator, a link or a channel for spirit, you know, connecting the unseen worlds with the world we are living in. Right. And you can only do it, you know, you have to do a great deal of work on yourself. The more issues you have with yourself, the more contaminated is your channel, if you want. And... um, yeah, that is one of the of the basic necessities when you want to do shamanic work that you have to put your ego, your personality out mm-hmm. of the way. All right, well, look, uh, Dora, we're at the bottom of the hour here, so mm-hmm. let's take a breather, and okay. I'll put on a little piece of music here, mm-hmm. and when we come back, let's talk a little bit about um, some of these examples that you mentioned about mm-hmm. uh, shamanism and, and, and the validity of, of, of the whole the whole uh, undertaking, and maybe we'll talk about that and convince people, or at least uh, put some evidence out there that it is something that should be uh, not brushed aside and not discounted, and and, and should be investigated on, uh, you know, if people are interested in it. Okay. And um, we have plenty of time to uh, talk about all this stuff, so let's do that. We'll be back in just a few minutes. My guest is Doro Meinke. You can find information about Doro at www.fire-heart.com. You can also link right over there from mikehagan.com. And a really interesting conversation. We'll come back with Doro and we'll continue it, talking about shamanism, healing, uh, and eventually we're going to talk about initiation. And uh, we'll have to define a lot more of this stuff as we go, but uh, male initiation, something I've, uh, been interested in a long time, something that doesn't get talked about enough in our particular culture, so we will talk about it tonight. All right, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit, and this is Jos Van Oost, again, featured music from Rotterdam, Netherlands, and I hope you enjoy it. We'll be back in just a few minutes. And, well, it's called a solid air.
Live in the studio here uh, about three or four months ago on Casey Olianik's show, Open Mic Radio. And he recorded all that, and we're bringing it to you again tonight. And by the way, that last one goes out to Wanda in uh, Prathersville. So I hope you dig it. And uh, hello out there to the Boogeyman as well. I know you're listening. And Boogie's coming in in about an hour and a half from now. And he's going to continue things on uh, the airwaves, as he always does, Monday night, taking you through to Tuesday morning. So stick around after the program here and uh, listen to the Boogeyman, because he's always got something interesting lined up for you. 
Aloha, this is Paradise Nguyen. And Michael Heisen. And you're listening to Radio Orbit. With Mike Hagan on KOPN. Columbia, Missouri. All right, that's right. It is uh, Radio Orbit, and it is Columbia, Missouri. And that was my friend Michael Heisen in Paradise, Newland, and also friends of my guest tonight, whose name is Doro Meinke. And we've been talking with Doro for the last half hour or so about shamanism and a little bit about herself, but we're going to be continuing the conversation here as we go. So, uh, hello, Doro. Are you back hello. with us? All right, good. Uh so, where were we? We were. You were asking if I could um, provide you with some experiences that give people an idea how shamanism is working and that it has a practical validity yes. and really is working in our daily lives. All right, well, let's do that. Yeah. Um, I would like to share an experience that I had with a client. She had a neck surgery. And what happened was that a disc in her neck had been popped out or okay. ripped out. Right. And she got a replacement with a titanium implant. And she did not know how she would come out of this surgery. And uh, luckily, she was still functioning, so she had no damage to her brain or her spine and could move around. But after the surgery, she had tremendous uh, trouble with her nervous system. She could, for example, not lay on her back without getting um, heart heart racing. So her heart was pounding out of her chest Mm -hmm. and she felt as if she would suffocate. Uh, She had attacks, fainting attacks while walking around. Um, She had sensations that the top of her arms felt like Ants running up and down, and on the the bottom side of her arms, it was hot, hmm. and on her spine, it was cold. So all kinds of nervous sensations that were all screwed up, and really uh, life-threatening experiences. She but, thought she was suffering a stroke or a heart attack. Hey, Doral, yeah? let, let me ask you a question about that. As far as physically, in other words... The doctors or whatever, and the x-rays, et cetera, did they say that, in other words, her physical body was okay, was supposed to yes, be okay? absolutely. She oh. she went to even to the neurological uh, department of the university in Stanford uh-huh. to have herself checked because she said, no, something must be wrong with the implant. Right, and, right, right. You know, I feel worse than I did before the surgery. So, And they checked her through and confirmed that everything is all right. And these are usually people that somehow end up with me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I performed something you call a shamanic journey mm-hmm. for her. That means I alter my state of consciousness through the rhythms of a drum, through listening to a monotonous sound. Oh, by the way, the music you played before you had me on air mm-hmm. would have put me on a journey right away. <laughs> <laughs> it was great music. Good. So there are ways to induce a different brainwave state, yes. a trance state. And in that state, I can perceive the energy of a person. That means emotions, stored memories that you are carrying around, whatever experience you had in the past. And my brain translates these informations either literally, so that I literally see what had happened to the person, or I get 
pictures, images, visions that have a metaphorical character and give me information, but metaphorically, I never know what I perceive. So what I immediately saw, when I, when I say saw, I mean perce- uh, perceived. It's not seeing with your physical eyes, it's a visionary perception. So what I saw was immediately I switched position with her and found myself actually inside of her body on the surgery table. And I could see five surgeons being totally concentrated on fixing her neck, stabilizing her neck. Wow. And it is something very, very important to understand is that energy flows where intention goes. That means, and I guess it's meanwhile proven in uh, in physics that you influence an experiment, the outcome of the in- experiment, by your intent, right? Right, right. That's, so, been, that's been shown now. Yes, it is science. That's how it works. And um, You know, that's the funny thing about science is that science has opened, sci- science's tools have opened doors on the unimaginable and it just blows their own minds and they don't yeah. know how to handle it, you know? <laughs> but we shamans do. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the beauty of it, though. Yeah, we practice this stuff that they confirm later. So what happened was through their focused intent to stabilize, stabilize the neck of their patient, they created kind of an energy around her neck that I perceived that my brain translated me into a, a metal collar. Mm-hmm. And that collar was somehow attached to her chest, and it had a big screw. As I said, that's a metaphor, that's a picture, how right, right, right. I perceive the energy, but then I get a handle on it, mm-hmm. a screw in the back of her neck. <clears throat> so the second step in that healing, what I did was I simply unscrewed that collar, and I do it in the trance state. I do it with my helping spirits and um, just extracted it. That's another shamanic practice that is practiced all over the world. It's trance states. It's doing shamanic journeying for diagnostic reasons, for divination, mm-hmm. for all kinds of reasons, and then doing an extraction. And what you extract is what you've got too much, what does not belong into your system. And for us shamans, we perceive a person as containing a body, which means for me, everything is a light body, is made of light, is made of energy mm-hmm. and materializing a body. Mm-hmm. I don't see it the other way around. Right. Yeah. So I dived into the energy field of that person and then extracted that metal collar and then did a healing you know, for rebalancing her system by bringing back the soul part, that means part of your life essence, of your vital essence, that you lose in a traumatic event. Mm. That was the healing, the closure for that process. Mm. The next day, the client came back to me and reported that all her symptoms had gone. It was gone. She was healed. Mm. That's just one example of a practical application of the healing. That's a fascinating and a a wonderful story. And see, that's one of the things that's so great about this stuff is that it really is hopeful, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's not... uh, uh, The bottom line is that, that, that 
you, you can argue it any way you want, you know, and say, well, science says that what you're saying is just not possible. Well, the bottom line is that these things are happening yes. in 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 re, in the real world, and we have evidence of it. So, exactly. uh, so people just need to decide on their own what they want to believe. You know, do you believe your own experience? <laughs> you know, exactly. ba- based in your own uh, consciousness, or do you believe some uh, some hierarchical dictate uh, laid on from above? You know. Yeah. Hey, Dora, let me ask you a question about uh, uh, the the trance state. You mentioned that you use a drum, mm-hmm. and uh, l- let's clarify that a little bit more because I know there are a number of different methods uh, that the shaman. Uh, can use in order to to to, to per- perturb the mind, so mm-hmm. to speak, and and to induce these these states. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the drum. I know you know sometimes it's ordeal, sometimes yogic practice or breathing or something like that. Mm-hmm. Certainly, um, uh, some dance. shamans in, yeah, dance the the ingestion of a plant, perhaps that has a psychoactive oh, yeah. compound yeah. in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about that, about how you get into that state and then uh, that it really is a different sort of place where you are. Mm-hmm. So do you want me to describe well, what I experience or how I do it? Yes, I'd like to know a little bit about the drumming, for example. I mean, is it uh, is there a particular song, for example, that you that you play or is it or is it just uh I just drum. It's a monotonous rhythm. Mm-hmm. It's a monotonous rhythm. And at the same time, as I said previously, what is another key um, to get into a trance is that you focus your power and intent on the journey. Mm. So that is actually the power and intent, your, your focus and intent is like the ticket right. that you buy to determine the destination mm. where you want to go. If I just drum and go into trance, I go someplace. But you have to invoke it and you have to exactly. have intention and, and exactly. focus. That's right. Exactly. So when I do a shamanic trance journey, I usually um, focus my intent of where I want to go. And in the shamanic universe, and of course that's an, a metaphor, it's a map, and the map is never the reality, but it mm. helps you to travel along the way. In the shamanic universe, you have three levels. You have the lower world, the middle world, and the upper world. And in the lower world, you can meet spirits, your helping spirits, you can find power and advice. Mm -hmm. In the middle world, that is our level here, but our level here has a spiritual aspect to it. For example, I could travel to the spirit of a tree. In the shamanic universe, there is nothing dead. Everything is alive. Mm -hmm. Even my car, to some extent, it's Mm -hmm. made of earth. Right. Right, and earth is a living being. Gaia is a living being. A plant is alive. It has a different form of consciousness, but in a shamanic trance state, I can go beyond the form and meet the consciousness, the spirit of this plant, and then get into a communication mm-hmm. and retrieve information. Right. And again, that's where the, the rubber hits the road because the, 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 the proof is in the pudding. You come back with information. Exactly. Yeah, valid information. That's one of the exercises that I love to do in my workshops when people have overcome their mistrust in their abilities to really travel and 
you know, get back into their shamanic perceptions, that gets always doubted by the by the mind. So once they have taken that hump, I ask them to journey for somebody else and find out about the person they don't know, and they come back and they find out the information that doesn't make any sense to them at that time mm-hmm. is valid for the person they didn't know for where they retrieved it for, you know. Um, right, right, right. So, and then the upper world, that the middle world is our level here and it has its spiritual aspects. And in the upper world, you perceive your spiritual guides, your spiritual teachers. That is a level where you meet light beings, where I would locate the angels. In shamanic traditions, there are uh, whole cosmologies about these levels and you can travel mm. and explore them yourself all these levels and then you will find a lot of parallels um, in mythologies mm-hmm. descriptions of ancient cultures of these levels that right. means right. when you travel as a shaman into these into the universe that is mapped out in these three different layers you will make the same discoveries that the shamans have made 20,000 years ago right. So, but what you have to do when I approach a client, then I have to focus my intent on the issue of the client. So I say, I'm now traveling, let's say, in the lower world where I have a lot of spiritual helpers, spirit power animals, um, to retrieve information about what's going on with my client. Hmm. And then I go exactly where I want to go. So I call it always the ticket that you have to, you know to get in order to go to the destination you want to go in order to find what you are asking for. Otherwise, you end up somewhere and, you know, you float around. Mm. So did that answer the question? Yes, uh, beautifully, actually. And let me ask you this, uh, just so maybe we can balance this out a little bit Mm -hmm. so people don't uh, think that the whole thing is roses. Uh, There's also... Uh, there's a dangerous aspect to it as well. I mean, there are are dark powers as well, and some people use these things uh, with with other intent. Maybe you could talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, that's true. And I don't want to dwell on it. I just want people to know know that it exists. I mean, as a shaman, I'm dedicated to healing, but what I do can be used for destruction too. That would be called sorcery. Hmm. Like, for example, hmm, let me give you an example. When, when I can retrieve soul parts and extract energies, um, intrusive energies that are in your system and misinform your system and make you sick, mm. then I can, in, on the same token, go and place that kind of energy into your system to right. make you sick. Right. That would be sorcery. Mm-hmm. And it is done. In the Americas, you can... Uh, in the South American countries, you can go and uh, hire a sorcerer. You say, I have some trouble with um, this relative over there. You mm-hmm. know, he did something evil to me, so please rebalance this right. <laughs> and put in right. some disease uh, in his system. And it works. They can make you sick. Mm. You know? But I'm dedicated to healing. Okay. And that is uh, where I'm initiated into the healing path. Right. Yeah. But okay. it works the other way. Energy is just energy, right, and right. it's you know the way you handle it makes the difference. Right. You know, interestingly, it turns out to be very similar. It's it's a technology of sorts. In other words, what you're describing 
although it may not be technology the way that we sort of think about it, like buttons and and, and microchips and this sort of thing, but it is a, a technology of sorts, and in the same way that our technology, uh, the physical uh, technology that we have, can be used, uh, you know, for for wonderful things, but also to, for obviously uh, really nasty things. Yes, absolutely. It is in our hands. It's our choice. What we want to do. And uh, you know, and sorcery, I think, is something too that that is not relegated to the to the quote unquote primitive. You know, sorcery can exist in Armani suits as well. It does. That is something. You know, these so-called primitive people are still aware of sorcery. They deal with it. It's part of their lives. In our culture, it's still going on. I can give you an example. For example, when you um, put out your intent in a negative way towards another person, Mm -hmm. that is called sorcery, or the sorcery that you inflict on yourself with all your self-doubts and negativity that is geared towards yourself, you know, all the limitating thoughts and beliefs that we have, that is self-sorcery that Mm. we inflict on ourselves. Or let's say you are involved, you are in a traffic jam, you are in a hurry, and um, the person in front of you just slams the brakes. And you just miss the point and you hit him. And you are so, you know, upset now because your date is going down the toilet and your whole day is crumbled and, and then you curse that person. Yeah, you send out intentionally bad negative thoughts towards that person yeah. in the car in front of you. And that person has just in that moment suffered a soul loss mm. through trauma by being shocked, you know, hitting another car. Right. Your negative energy will lodge in that person's system and eventually make him sick. Mm. Yeah, and we do it. Uh, unconsciously, right. it, we do it all the time, but we are not aware of what we are actually doing. Right, and the and the yeah. and the level of uh, of focus or intent is something that has to be considered as well. In other words, uh, it's fractional these things. Yes. Right, depending on how really upset you are, or yes. how really yeah. intent you are on hurting that person. How much power you send. Right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It works. Interesting. All right. Well, I tell you what. Um, let's uh, let's take another break here, okay? Mm-hmm. And we'll come back. And I think we've 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 covered the whole uh, concept of shamanism really well, actually. And I'm really pleased that we had the time to do it. Let's come back and we'll talk about initiations a little okay. bit and some of the further work that you're doing, okay? Yeah. Okay, Michael. All right, Doro. Thank mm-hmm. you very much. We'll be back in just a moment with my guest, Doro Meinke. Uh, she's an amazing woman, as is obviously apparent to all but the dullest among us. So uh, check her out at www.fire-heart.com. And you can also get there from my website at mikehagan.com. All right, and we're going to feature a little bit more music here from Jos van Oost. Wonderful music from Rotterdam, Netherlands. And uh, as I've been talking about all night, uh, and I'm plugging my friend Casey's show because it really is so cool. And he does a great job uh, coming up with wonderful musicians out of the woodwork sometimes. And uh, Yost was one of these guys. And we're trying to concentrate on independent music here on the show. And 
that's a message that goes out as well to all the listeners and anybody listening over the web. Uh, this is a call, a clarion call for independent music. If you want to buck the, uh, the corporate control scene, send me your music. If it works with the program, I'll play it and I will talk about it. All right? Um, and you don't have to worry about uh, the FCC jumping down our throats uh, for sharing our art. All right. As example, uh, Jos Van Oost from a few months ago on Casey Oleonic's Open Mic Radio. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. I'll be back in just a few minutes with Doro Meinke. One more time, uh, www.fire-heart.com. This is the real blues, and the other ones, I don't know, there's a bluesy feel to it.
Gibber does his song. I'm gonna rise from my grave. I'm gonna rise. I'm gonna rise from the sweet jelly roll. I'm the only man big and jelly. I keep it in my soul. The only man big jelly. I keep it in my soul. The only man big jelly. And I keep it in my soul. This is Mike Hayden. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a minute with my guest, Doro Meinke, uh, www.fire-heart.com. is the place where you can get information about what we're talking about tonight. And we're going to continue our conversation, and this is going to help us do it. You call them temple caves. Yeah. Why, why temple? A temple with images and um, stained glass windows. Uh, cathedrals are a landscape of the soul. You move into a world of spiritual images. That's what this is. When Jean and I, my wife and I, drove down from Paris to this part of France, we stopped off at Chartres Cathedral. There is a cathedral. When you walk into the cathedral, it's the mother womb of your spiritual life. Mother Church, all the forms around are significant of spiritual values. And the imagery is in anthropomorphic form. God and Jesus and uh, the saints and all in human, human form. Human form. Then we went down to Lascaux, the images were in animal form. The form is secondary. The message is what's important. Here. And the message of the cave? The message of the cave is of a relationship of time to eternal powers that uh, is somehow to be uh, experienced in that place. Now, I can tell you, when you're down in those caves, it's a, it's a strange transformation of consciousness you have. You feel this is the, the womb. This is the place from which life comes. And that world up there in the sun with all those feet, that's a secondary world. Mm. This is primary. I mean, this just overcomes you. You had that feeling when I, you were I had it every time. Now, what were these caves used for? Yeah. The speculations that uh, are most uh, common of scholars interested in this is that they had to do with the initiation of boys into the hunt. Uh, you go in there, it's dangerous. Uh, it's very dangerous. It's completely dark. It's cold and dank. You're banging your head on projections all the time. And it was a place of fear. And the boys were to overcome all that and uh, go into the womb of the earth. And the shaman or whoever it was that would be uh, helping uh, you through would not be making it easy. And then there was a release once you got into that vast torchlit chamber down there. What was the tribe, what was the tradition trying to say to the boy? That is the womb land from which all the animals come. And the, the rituals down there have to do with the generation of a situation that will be uh, propitious for the hunt. And the boys were to learn not only to hunt, but how to respect the animals and what rituals to perform and how in their own lives, no longer to be little boys, but to be men. Because those hunts were very, very dangerous hunts, believe me. And uh, 
that these are the original men's right sanctuaries where the boys became no longer their mother's sons, but their father's sons. Don't you wonder what effect this had on a, on a boy? Well, you can, you can go through it today, actually, in, in uh, the cultures that are still having the initiations of young boys. They give them an ordeal, a terrifying ordeal, that the youngster has to survive, makes a man of him, you know. What would happen to me as a child if I went through one of these rites? As far as well, we, can... we know what they do in Australia. And when a boy gets to be, you know, a little bit uh, ungovernable, uh, one fine day, the men come in, and they're naked except for stripes of white down that have been stuck on their bodies in stripes with their men's blood. They use their own blood for glue, gluing this on. And they're swinging the bull roarers, which are the voice of the spirits. And they come as spirits. The boy will try to take refuge with his mother. She'll pretend to try to protect him. The men just take him away. Mother's no good from then on, you see. He's no longer a little boy. He's in the men's group, and then they put him really through an ordeal. These are the rites, you know, of circumcision, sub-incision. The whole purpose is to... Turn him into a member of the tribe. And a hunter. And a hunter. Because that was the way of life. Yeah, but most important is to live according to the needs and uh, values of that tribe. Hmm. He is initiated in... Uh, a short period of time into the whole culture context of his people. So myth relates directly to ceremony and tribal ritual and the absence of myth can mean the end of ritual. A ritual of is the enactment of a myth. By participating in a ritual you are participating in a myth. And what does it mean, you think, to young boys today that we absent these myths? Well, the confirmation ritual is the counterpart today of, of these rites. As a little Catholic boy, uh, you uh, choose your confirmed name, the name you're going to be confirmed by, and uh, you go up. But instead of having them uh, scarify you and knock your teeth out and all, the, the bishop gives you a mild slap on the cheek. It's been reduced to that. Nothing's happened to you. The, uh, the Jewish counterpart is the bar mitzvah. Mm -hmm. And uh, whether it works, actually, to affect a psychological transformation, I suppose will depend on the individual case. Well, there's no problem in these old days. The boy came out with a different body, and uh, he'd gone through something. Wow. All right, uh, this is Mike again, and you just listened to a clip from uh, 1988, a conversation between Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell. And every time I hear his voice and I hear his words, uh, I, I thank uh, the gods and goddesses that, uh, that he was uh, brought into my sphere of understanding and uh uh, and someone that I was lucky enough to uh, to discover. And the guy is amazing, and he rests in peace, and I honor the souls of his ancestors. And uh, 
speaking of all of this wonderful stuff, let's get right back to Doro Meinke and see what her thoughts are about what we just heard and let her uh, continue the uh, uh, the conversation. Yeah, hi. Hi, Doro. Um, yeah. How shall I start this? <laughs> <laughs> I came up with male initiation um, from my rooted in my personal journey. So I did not study mythology or, you know, get into any background about that whole issue, but it was my own personal experience and victimization in this male society in that we are living that brought up in me burning questions Mm -hmm. of what does it mean to be male in the meaning or in the sense of the creator. Mm. Whatever you want to put in place of creator. Yeah, but what does it mean in its natural way? Because, and I'm not um, a man-hater or a feminist, I just wanted answers mm-hmm. for what I perceive as a dysfunctional society that we are living in. Right, self-evidently. Yeah. And what I could see is that we are living in a man's world. And when I say we, I mean our Western civilizations. Um, And that this world is life hostile. And I could elaborate about that in detail, but I would rather want to go further and come to the point and come up with a solution or with the key information here. I agree. As why men have to be initiated and what it takes to make an initiation an initiation. So let me go back. I wanted to understand. I could not believe that it was meant by the Creator that our males are so disconnected from life that they created a society, a culture, a civilization that is so hostile towards life and dysfunctional in all its aspects. So we are brought to the, to the uh, border of extinction. Our planet mm. is in danger. We extinct species every day. I mean, I don't need to name it all. Mm. Doral, let, yeah. me, let me ask something or, 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 or throw something in the mix here. Yeah. People have this idea that uh, when they think about history, yeah. you know, uh, and I'm thinking of my parents here, mm-hmm. and I think that they're probably representative of many people in Western society, but they say things like, well, you know, it's always been like this, and, <laughs> and you know, and history repeats itself, and, you know, it's just the way it is, it's, you know, it's never going to change. But they they really don't take into account the fact that history that they're talking about is really just a click on uh, on the clock and long before the current sort of uh uh masculine paternalism uh thing that's going on right now there there were there were there were different uh swings of the bat that were yeah. you know and so anyway just yeah. maybe address Ab- that a little bit yes absolutely um as far as i remember we had a history of 30,000 years with no wars mm in a society that is called matriarchy. But I want to talk about that later, too, because right now, with what I came up with, I would not say that we ever had a matriarch, matriarchal society in 
uh, as a pole, a pole, an opposite pole of right. the patriarchal societies that we are living in right now, I would call them initiatory societies where males and females had their right places in a cosmic sense that they fulfilled their purpose in the sense of the, of creation and that they were equals. Yeah, a balance between yes, the two. Exactly. Right. But not not, you know, that we had a matriarchy mm-hmm. where the women were in power and the males were the ones who were subservient. Were, yeah. Right. No, right, because then you, yeah, then you end up with probably maybe may, may different but similar situations. You have tr- you have trouble. Yeah, no, and um, yeah. So, and our history traces back much longer than two thousand years mm. or six thousand years or whatever, when patriarchal yeah. society started to uh, um, form. There is so much. Oh, I, I think we don't have the time to cover that all, but <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting to look at all these developments and how pat- patriarchal structures came into place um, when they came from inner Asia, like hordes came intruding, you know, Greece from inner Asia because of necessity. Mm. The tribes had to move and had to turn into warrior tribes, moving warrior tribes in order to make it because their place where they were living was not providing them with the food and the security. You know, inner Asia turned into kind of a desert at that time, and so they started migrating. There's a lot more to history as what is commonly taught at school or known, but it's all surfacing now. Yeah, I mean, the environments were shifting. There was a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, what they call evolutionary pressures that were being put on all these different species. And it wasn't just... You know, there's a wonderful book that was uh, written by a woman whose name is Barbara Ehrenreich, and it's called Blood Rights. And she makes it really clear that, you know, this image of, uh, you know, our ancestor from the high Paleolithic marching out of the, uh, you know, the arboreal rainforest with the, you know, spear in hand, all ready to conquer the plains. Well, that that you know that's a nice image, but it's not at all the way it really was exactly. apparently. Yeah. And and you know they, they were running for their lives. They were big predators. Many of the skeletons and fossils that we find of our ancestors had big claw marks in them mm-hmm. and big bites from big cats. <laughs> so uh, so it was one of great danger out there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. so anyway. Yes. So that question put me on a quest. What does it really mean to be male mm-hmm. and female, but mostly male, in the sense of the creator of creation in its natural way? And I did not want to discover some opinion. I really wanted to find the truth. Mm. That sounds very arrogant, maybe, but that was my quest about but where can you find the truth? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the question. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, down on Earth, right. down on Earth, that's where I discovered something that I would call a truth. If you can follow me with some, let's say, common ground that we have to find here, then we can just move into the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, would you agree with me that? There are some cosmic laws in place that always apply, like 
they are derived from Hermes Trismegistus, mm-hmm. who um, must have or who is uh, already mentioned in Egyptian mythology. Yes. Um, and he has written an emerald table, mm-hmm. emerald plate, yes. you say, where he wrote down these laws. And one of the laws is that it's very, very old. It might go back 10,000 years or even more. Um, one of the laws says, how above, so below. Mm, yes. And how inside, so outside. And this is something that gets verified step by step by quantum physics too. Mm. That this really applies. So can you can you agree with me on this? Can we find this common ground? Here? Yeah, yes. And yeah? you know, there, there's a, and the only thing that I'll add is yeah. the there was a philosopher his name was Wittgenstein and he he talked about true enough. <laughs> In other words, it's impossible apparently to know the ultimate truth, but some things are true enough. Yeah, okay. and, and and so I'll so I'll, I'll go with you there and I'll say certainly true enough that that's right. what we experience. Yes. Yeah. And it's true for me right now. <laughs> mm. So let's And for and, me, and for me. Yeah. Okay, so um how above so below? If this applies, then we can say that we as males and females are a reflection of the universe in its male and female aspect. I can agree with that. You can agree with that. Okay. If this is true, then we are like a living metaphor, a living or embodiment of a divine principle. I mean, this is what all our creation myths tell us anyway. Exactly. Here we meet. So that means that now I only need to, and then I can look at the human body as an allegory Hmm. from where I can draw conclusions into other levels, right? Yes. So then I can say, if you are a reflection of the universe in its male aspect, or I could say it in different words, I could say, you are a reflection of God in his male aspect. Mm-hmm. And I'm a reflection of the goddess, or God in her female aspect. Yes. Then I just only need in, to look into your body, into the organs that make you a male and me a female. Mm. And by looking into the organs and see where they are located, how they function, and cooperate, I can tell you, I can conclude what it means to be male and female. Hmm. That was the whole thing. And now the journey starts. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we've <laughs> been beating around uh, the bush, so to speak, yeah. uh, long enough. So uh... Okay. Then, okay, let's start. So, And as I said, the body now is an allegory that shows what is out there and what we create as a reality, too, because we can only create what we find inside. Okay. That's what we bring outside. So when you look into a baby girl and a baby boy, a newborn, you will discover that the eggs, oh, first, what makes you a male and me a female is in you the testicles, the testes, Mm -hmm. and in me the ovaries and the uterus. Yes. So your ability to create, my ability to perceive and give life. Yes. Located in these organs. So when we look now into a newborn baby girl, we see that the ovaries are all completely 
filled with eggs, that the eggs are all there. Mm-hmm. So I could now conclude out of this that to be female is something that is. You come in the world and you are equipped female. Yes, it comes with the trip. Exactly, it's there. It's the natural state. And you know, for example, that we all as uh, embryos start out female. Right. And then later turn into male. Yes, that's correct. You can say life itself, the universe itself is female. That's just the natural, ordinary state. And when I say that, I'm not placing, positioning the female below or above, that's just what is. Interestingly, the Hebrew word cheva, Eve, means life. Isn't that interesting? Mm, yeah. yeah. Another thing to look at is that the female organs, the ovaries and the uterus, are an integrated part of the body. Would mean, when I now transfer it and draw a conclusion, that to be female means to represent life and being an integrated part of it all. That means you can never fall out of nature. Mm. You are an integrated part of it all. And I later come to the Aborigines and how they organize their tribes, and you will see fascinating links here. Yes. Yeah, and and again, some some of these things, again, the metaphors that we use, Mother Earth, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and again, in, in primary societies, this idea that well, and it's just the tr- fact of the matter that woman is the giver of life and then the men is sort of the protector of life, yeah. typically. Yeah. yeah. Or at least that's the way I thought it was supposed to be set up. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. <laughs> but it goes far, far further. Okay, well, let's, co- let's continue. Okay, so now when you look into the newborn baby boy's body in the mm-hmm. testicles, you see there is no sperm. Hmm. That's one thing. And I could draw the conclusion that I say, so that means, in comparison with the female, to be a male is nothing you are. It is something you become. It is a becoming. It uh, is a journey. It's a path. Okay. It's nothing you are. I understand. I understand. Okay. And again, and based on physiology and biology. Exactly. Absolutely. That's where I draw all the conclusions from. So... <clears throat> Another thing is when you look at the testicles, where are they located? They are outside of the body. They are loosely attached. Mm. They get maintained by the whole system. But they have their life on their own. (laughs) (laughs) God, ain't it the truth? Yeah, and it's funny too. (laughs) So, and when you look at this system, it's very vulnerable. If it's too cold, too hot, it doesn't function. Mm. If... Uh, there is stress to the system, it doesn't function. And when you now look at the motility rate in newborn males and females, you will see that the motility rate in newborn male babies is much higher. And you will it's common sense that we know that males, although they have all the muscles, they are much more vulnerable and sensitive hmm. than the females. Interesting. We live longer, females live longer than the males. Now look where the male starts out in this container, outside of the whole system, in their own container. And they start developing, you start developing sperms when puberty kicks in. Yes. And what is interesting to see now is that the sperms get produced in three stages. 
So there is a spermatozoite, spermatogonia, spermium. I don't know the English terms. Mm -hmm. And what I want to say here too is that I bring in the basics. I'm not providing everything. It is what I'm bringing is a key information, and there is so much more research uh, that needs to be done, questions that need to be answered and asked and information put onto that skeleton that I'm providing. That right, is the right, key. right. And you're, so, but you're putting it on the radar, and we need to be talking about it. Obviously, yeah. all these things need to be discussed more. It's been yeah. so long since we've been able to talk about any yes. of them. Yes. So, and I'm not saying, oh, what I bring in is that males have to be initiated. They know. Many men know. They feel it, but they don't know what to do mm. in order to make an initiation an initiation. And that is the piece of information that I bring in here and I draw it from the body. The body shows what needs to be done to make an initiation an initiation. So what we get is the framework for the ritual that has been lost over time in our culture. So I could retrieve it again by looking it up in the body, and that is the gift that I can bring in and say, here, look, that's how it has to be done. And now we need to sit together and, you know, work it out and make it happen. All right, but, my gosh. Yeah, but let's go back. Um, so the males, what, what is interesting to observe here is the sperms, they develop in three stages. That means what you have, in this container, you have a hierarchy. Yes. Now look huh. in... <laughs> As yeah. above, so below. Yes, exactly. <laughs> How inside, so outside. Now look into the ovaries. Here, all the eggs, they go through maturity stages, but there is no egg less developed than the other. Mm. What develops is the environment around, the follicle, the follicle that has to grow and pop and the ovaries that grow. But the eggs themselves, they are all on the same level. Mm, that see. is how we women meet. We meet in a circle of equals. Mm. Now try to do that with a male. Mm, much harder. They always position themselves. Mm. Always. And it is nothing to blame them for. It's just a part of their nature at a certain stage of their journey, but it's not the final stage. Mm. And then look, when you look outside, the institutions that are created, each company, each political party, each club, everything mm. is organized hierarchically. Right. Primarily male dominance hierarchy. Of course. <laughs> Males create that because that is who they are. Right. Because they never get initiated. If they would, it would change. Huh. Well, okay. Well I think you know, I have to do my I have to do my Hollywood cliffhanger then because uh <laughs> we'll come back and you're gonna you're gonna give us some tips, I think. <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah. I, and honestly I don't mean to make light of this. It's really important. Yeah. And you're gonna uh, hopefully Tell us some of the things, at least like you say, give us this framework I will. Uh, yeah. so, that, so that boys uh, who have access to this stuff can figure out what the hell they're supposed to do. Exactly. And now much more can be understood in that framework. So I'm very, very excited yeah. about it and very grateful that I get the chance to talk well, about it with you. Here. And, you know, and I say it as a, uh, as a, as a, as a man who's been a boy. And, you know, I mean, I know how difficult it was going through the stuff that I went through, you know, again, personal experience. And, you know, gosh, it would have been, it would have been such a difference, such a difference if, if I would have had some, 
a way to set my compass, you know. And so anyway, okay, wonderful. We will come back and we will uh, uh, we'll complete the circle, so to speak. Mm-hmm. All right? Okay, my, my guest is uh, Doro Meinke. And uh, a wonderful, wonderful woman, an amazing shaman, and bringing information that is really valid and hopefully relevant uh, in people's out there, uh, in your lives out there, people who are listening to this. And we're going to find out uh, the real key to the whole thing in just a few minutes here. In the meantime, let's play one more song here by my friend Jos van Oost. Independent music from Rotterdam, Netherlands. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And I'll be back in just a few minutes. Sometimes get so 
ago and I was lucky enough to be present at that wonderful little private concert uh, that Yos put on for us a few months ago and uh, here's to you Yos and I'm going to make sure I send you a copy of this program in the US or uh, Netherlands mail system all right so enough of all of that local color and uh, all this other malarkey. Let's get back to business with Doro. Welcome back to the program. And yeah, one more time, uh, let me give the website one more time. It's fire-heart.com. And uh, you can find information about Doro there or from my website at mikehagan.com as well. All right, Doro, let's talk about what's going on with the boys and with men and how we're supposed to uh, get through the gate. Okay. Um, we stopped by describing the situation in the testes, the sperms that are, in, you know, that are developed in three stages, so that you have a hierarchical structure and that you can uh, draw a conclusion, look outside what males create the structures we have in our society. They are all hierarchically structured. Means a male always has to position himself. Means either above or below something but they hardly can meet you as an equal. Um, and that's just a natural state at that stage of their development, but it's not the final stage, but it's the stage where males stay trapped in because they never get initiated. That means they never end their journey. They never fulfill their purpose. Or at least many of them. Many of them. Yes. I mean, in tribal cultures like um, in West Africa, Burkina Faso, Faso, people still initiate their boys and they know what they are doing. I have met a very fascinating person, Malidoma Sume, who is a shaman and who had been raised in Burkina Faso and then at the age of 12 in his tribe, right? And then at the age of 12 being abducted by the Jesuit monks and raised in, further raised uh, to adulthood in uh, hood in the Western tradition, and he's holding two PhD degrees mm. and walking both worlds. And he wow. went back, yes, he went back and got initiated into the elder status wow. of his tribe. And I talked to him and I said, hey, look, that's what I found out. And he said, that's exactly what we are doing. Mm. But the rites that are performed in different cultures, they are all, I don't want to say contaminated, but colored uh, and stuffed with cultural elements so that we cannot see the structure of the ritual and the structure of the ritual is what we can 
retrieve from the body, how above, so below. Mm. So now when we go back to the um, situation in the testicles, look, for example, at uh, the clubs that students have, what they do. They have that hierarchical structure. We call it schlagende Studentenschaften. <laughs> yes. I don't know how you call that mm -hmm. here in, in English. Um, but what is very fascinating at that point is to look at the Aborigines and to see that they have, for example, a separate container for their boys where they are amongst themselves. They get maintained by the tribe, but they do their boys' thing, guided and led on by the male. So basically they get raised by the male mm. and sustained by the females. The females are an integrated part of it all. And they do the gardening of the food and, you know, maintaining the tribal life, yes. the circle of life. But the males have their own container where they do their thing. Mm -hmm. And they have clear hierarchical structure. And, you know, it's the same situation as you find in the human body, in the male body. Doro, could I, could I add something? Sure. Uh, and this is just a personal experience Please, and something yeah. that, I, that I see. And it... And maybe it's something that other guys can relate to here because it has mm -hmm. to do with baseball, believe it or not. Yeah. But when I was a kid, we would play baseball. We called it sandlot baseball. Yeah. And it basically was just a bunch of kids from the neighborhood who got together and played ball. And there were no adults there. Yeah. And we worked out the rules by ourselves. And if there was a dispute, you yeah. know, uh, we figured it out. And sometimes, you know, somebody got mad and hit somebody, you know, yeah. whatever. But we worked it out. And I see now that very little of that, it, it, I mean, at a very young age, kids are put into uh, a place where they're, they're, now there's an umpire and there are all these rules. They don't get to figure out the rules themselves. They're, they are they're, formulized. Yeah, they're totally told exactly mm -hmm. how it is yeah. with ever figuring it. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that. I found that especially in the American culture. Hmm. I'm coming from Germany and Germans are called to be rude or said to be rude. But because the boys there, they, they they deal with their problems themselves, and they might come home with a bloody nose. Yeah. Yeah, but they figure it out themselves. Mm. And here, children are formula formulized. There is a formula formula that replaces the discovery, the self discovery, and the process that leads to some regulations, you know, in their in their world. So it gets substituted by a formula that is put on them forced on them by by the adults or by the educational system or whatever isn't yeah. it isn't yeah. it isn't it amazing that that even the the substitute for milk is actually called that it's actually called formula that's what they actually call the stuff, uh, you know, that, that that we give to babies, and not that it's not necessary. Some women yeah. need it uh, very yeah. badly, and and it's and it, but just the name, you know, the yeah. language behind it is really interesting. I think. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, okay, let's continue. It's all, it's all materializations of what is going wrong, mm. and once you get that whole structure, you will you can now apply and break down that. I would say almost everything that is dysfunctional in our society is rooted in the fact that men are not in their power at all and then not create what they are here to create. So, But let's get to that point. Yeah, like, okay, okay, so mm -hmm. we, we beat us up bad enough. Now let's figure out how, how we can, uh, how we can solve the problems. Yeah, so, after, so that means the male experience has to be at that point one, or it is when I look at the body now, 
of being in a brotherhood of men. Mm. In their safe container where they do their male thing. Mm. It's a brotherhood. Mm. And at one point in time, suddenly a dramatic ex- event happens. That is what uh, Joseph Campbell described. And he said, wow, the males come and they come as the spirits themselves and they are covered with the feathers and blood. That's this horrific, horrific uh, event that they uh, create in order to put the boys on their walkabout. Mm. That's part of the initiation journey. And that is what is happening in the body. I have not found any other tribe that so clearly copies in their ritual and tribal setting and structure what is going on in the body. It's very exciting. Mm. And um, in the body, it is the climax. The climax for the body is a dramatic event. Certainly. <laughs> yeah, so the breath rate goes up and the pulse rate goes up, the heart rate goes up and so on. Everything goes up apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I have to inject some comic relief yeah, please, because please, please. I, I'm and so nervous, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I like that. So um, everything goes up and in that state the matured sperms get ejected out in an environment, put on their journey mm. under a traumatic circumstance, wow. put on their journey, into an, get pushed into an environment that no matter where they go, they experience as life-threatening and hostile. Mm. Now look, if they go in the female body or elsewhere, it will kill them eventually. Yeah. Right. So now look at the basic attitude in our males. What is this planet? It's a place that you have to conquer. It's a place you have to protect yourself against. Right, a place that's it's hostile. a hostile place. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's part of being a male and part of their journey. But at the same time, has there been has there been in a brotherhood of men in the testicles? Now that they're on their journey, they have to bring out different qualities. They have to be competitive, goal oriented, and aggressive. Mm. in order to reach their goal. And it is a higher goal. This higher goal is to re-emerge, to reconnect with life, which is the female, which is the the egg, which is a higher goal. And the sperm or the consciousness of males is inspired, is deeply penetrated by this desire at a certain time of their life to sacrifice themselves for something bigger than they are. And I've, that's my personal opinion. That is why you can send males into a war. And they would die and sacrifice themselves for their fatherland or motherland or why they sacrifice themselves for a, a, an ideology or a religion or whatever. It's this ingrained desire of sacrificing yourself, even, you know, to extinction for reaching or making it making it to that higher goal. And and the age is, is significant in which in which Purity. those things happen. Yeah. For example, we are we, we take young men into the military. Yes. And, Absolutely. And in, in fact we call we call the most dangerous positions infantry. Yes. And I think that's an interesting word as well. <laughs> yes, very interesting. <laughs> I haven't thought about that. Yes. Well, at any rate. Yeah, and you can, when you now look at gangs, for example, you know, in this context, it makes totally sense. 
Mm. Yeah, that there are youth boys that form gangs. Yes. Or when you look at men, males that go and have to climb the highest mountains, have to expose themselves to life-threatening adventures. Mm. Right. For me, I see it as the body, uh, our soul, our being drives us to do what we are here to do, but we don't understand it, and oh. this energy is not yeah. channeled anymore and understood in its expression mm. and mm. suppressed and. Mm. Uh, perverted yeah. and you know channeled into some channels where this male energy yeah. is abused for the benefit of a few mm. well yeah. Doro it's amazing that you as a woman can say something so clearly that that person that I as a man can tell you is freaking true in other words the the most Look, I love my family, you know, and I'm uh, happily married, and I love my home, and I'm happy in my life, and I'm, you know, and I don't want to lose these things. But let me tell you, I love the weekend away with the guys, you know, yeah. and anybody that doesn't, I, I don't think there's a guy out there that, that can look you in the eye and honestly tell you that he doesn't, you know. Uh, but because those times are tremendously valuable to me as well. Yeah, yeah. You might get some brotherhood of men, mm. which is part of your journey into becoming a man. Right, and 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 again, yeah. the, the culture sets us up yeah. where it's very difficult to get in those situations. Absolutely. I mean, if if I can do it once a year, it's a miracle, you know. Yeah, I know, I know. The status quo uh, is is maintained, mm. you know, under all circumstances. Yeah. And I don't know if it is a dynamics that had been set in motion some 6,000 years ago and now has, you know, its own um, uh, momentum or mm. if it's somehow directed, I don't know, orchestrated, I mm. don't know. But what I know is what is going on in the body. And what is very interesting here to see is that we have three kinds of sperms. And we have one kind of sperm, I call them the warriors. They are there and only there to kill sperm of a different genetics. Really? Isn't, yes. Isn't that interesting? Then we have a, a second So they have no interest in penetrating the egg. No. They just are there to kill sperms of a different genetics. Mm, wow. That's, that, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. I mean, in this uh, uh, show, we can only cover mm, yes. very, very much the basics. There's so yes. much more to say about it and... This, yeah, it has so many aspects. It touches all aspects of life. It's huge. And um, the second kind of sperm, I call them the enablers. They are there to find out the right way mm. for the kings. I call them the kings. They are the ones who carry the creative potential, the DNA that finally presents itself around the egg and one of them gets chosen. Mm. So these three kind of sperms now go on their journey and are, you know, um, inspired and by the desire to sacrifice even themselves mm. to reach that higher goal, which is reconnecting with the female. When you look at the male body, the testicles and the sperms, they are not a part, an integrated part of life. Mm. They are outside of it. They get maintained, they right. get maintained by, but they are mm. not a part of it. Mm. So they are not connected 
to life. Right. And again, we have these we have these subtle cultural hints at those things. We, you know, guys yeah. talk about, well, you know, it's got a mind of its own and this sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, and it's absolutely. funny, but it's actually true, sort of. Yeah, it is. Exactly. I, I found out that there are many things that you can take literally. Hmm. But I thought previously it was to be taken metaphorically, right. which it isn't. Now, okay, now the, uh, the sperms are on their journey. And when you look at the sperm, you see it's an aggressive being. It has a tail that is made of muscles, mm-hmm. muscle fibers, and a mitochondrium that delivers the energy. Yes. And then you have the acrosome, the head part that carries the potential, the creative potential. I love to call the DNA creative potential. Mm. And look at guys. <laughs> some are heads, some are muscles. Right? <laughs> um, but anyway, you see it is a, a aggressive unit, a forward-stepping, moving aggressive unit that is driven to reach its goal, which is the egg. Once they are there, they gather around the egg and they start a kind of biochemical communication process. Mm. The kings, they drill little holes into the outer eggshell and then start, um, um, how do you say, uh, giving off chemicals and the egg responds with chemicals. So some communication right, is right. going on. I compare it to, have you ever noticed a crowd of guys standing around and a beautiful woman stepping in, what they do? They say, look at me. Right. Look at me. Look at me. Gosh, Doro, and you just said a moment ago, and you used a, a, a word, and I know you choose your words carefully. You said, chose. So the egg is going to choose. Exactly. And look, everything else would be rape, wouldn't it? Right, in other words, again, it's this whole fractal idea that as above, so below, the way a woman chooses a man here is no different than at this level. Exactly. My God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that it hit me me with a hammer when I had that revelation. God, (laughs) it it just clobbered me. And and it's amazing because I talk about the fractal nature of the universe all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. And I thought I grokked it. You know, and it's all down to earth. now I get a little bit more of the picture for yeah. sure. And now I'm, you know, and as I always find out, there's always more. Yes, absolutely. And mm. I'm excited to find out more. Wow. <laughs> wow. But now, now comes the point. And everything that I'm describing is part of the initiation process. Mm. So an initiation is not only one piece of this whole journey. It's the whole journey that you have to go through in order to make it happen. Clarify so, that for me. Um, so men have to experience the brotherhood of men. Continuously they, or just at this one time in their life? or I would say, I don't know. As, at least it's the beginning part of their initiation journey. I don't know much about men who are initiated. If they go back and mm. create... I, no, I would say once they're initiated, they become an integrated part of life and then they start becoming part of the circle. They, they build maybe the elders. Yeah. Well, anyway, I mean, I, I again, I, I can't help but look at my own personal experience, you know. Yeah. And talk, and I, I have these friends, you know. I have, I have friends that are my best friends, you know, that I went through all of my shit with. Yeah. And I'll say, yeah, I don't care. Uh, when I was... You know, 12, 13, yeah. 14 years yeah, old. That is the age where you should get initiated. Yeah, and man, I, I did, you know. <laughs> Let me tell you. But 
it turns out that those guys are as much family to me now as any other part of my biological family. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your brothers. And they are my brothers, and yes. I would die for them. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yep. Now, oh my God, my <laughs> my my phone is dying. Uh, well, um, um, but I could switch to a different. But but let let me use the time to. Yes. That we still have. Um, what now happens is once the sperm is chosen by the egg, so life decides in which direction it wants to evolve, yes. right? Um, <clears throat> what happens is, and that's a crucial part, only the head, the acrosome, merges with the egg. The tail gets cut off. <sighs> what that means is that the old aggressive being of a sperm has to die in order to reconnect with the female, with life itself. That is why a near-death experience is a crucial part in the male initiation. How you inflict this experience is a totally different story, but it is a crucial part in this whole process. You have to surrender. That is what you do when you die, and I experienced that myself. Totally surrender. So the old form totally has to die so that the, the creative potential can unfold in co-creation with the female. Mm, and, then, and then you unfold your creative potential and basically you create a new universe. Right. And then your potential, whatever that may be, is allowed to, to, to blossom. Exactly. And mm-hmm. later released in the circle of life and become a creative part in the universe itself. Wow. Yeah. So that is basically the structure of the initiation ritual. You have to have that container where you celebrate your brotherhood of males, of men. Then you have to be put journey. You have to give what you can on this journey to experience your limits in order to find out who you are. That is what sperms do. They face death in a very con- competitive, aggressive way, right? Yes. And then you have to present yourself as who you are, and you know now who you are. Then you get chosen, and then you have to die. <laughs> and then you get reborn and reconnected with the female. And then you are a part of life, and you have integrated the female. And you are no more a mother-son, by the way. I mean, we could cover so much more mm. things now for the next two hours at least. Well, Doro, my yeah. gosh, I've got enough. We've had enough for now. It's going to take some digestion, but we are going to do this again. And there's, as you say, much more to talk about. But uh, I, I, you know, I look at the clock and I think, man, where'd the time go? And I wish we had more, but yeah. we are going to have to call it quits. Uh, but I think we got there, though. Yeah, we got there. We got there. Yeah. That's basically... Now, what what I want to point out, too, is um, I have visited the Olympic Stadium, the ancient Olympic Stadium in Greece, Mm -hmm. and it is a rebuild of the body. Mm -hmm. You have the testicle area where the athletes did their training. Then they had to pass the Zeus Temple. Then the fire of passion had Mm -hmm. to be lit. This is the Olympic Mm -hmm. fire. It's the fire of passion. Otherwise, you don't get the process going. And then they walked through something that looked like a penis, where only two men can walk along a long hallway, 
and then they go into the arena like the uterus. Right. There they did their did their battle. Their battle, and then they were chosen. And the tour guide said, but there were no women allowed then. I said, you know what, wasn't there just one woman in the arena? Yeah, there was a high priestess, but that doesn't count. Oh, yes, well, it counts. There is only one egg, right? Yes. (laughs) And I think think that they performed an initiation. There are initiations there. That is the background of the Olympic Games. And I'm absolutely convinced when you look in other ancient sites that you will find similar things here. That's wow. another thing I want to point out. Yes, yes. I think. There is a lot of more research that needs to be done. Or I yeah. would like to know, does the brain alter? Does the biochemistry alter once you have been gone through a near-death experience? It, I assume that you totally change and that you even change biochemically hmm. and that your nervous system changes, that you really transform. Yes. And this kind of initiation is only the first. You have to do it. Otherwise, you don't become a man. You don't become an integrated part of life. You stay outside. And you stay in that sperm stage. I call it sperm mentality that is ruling the planet. And, uh, um, yeah. All right, Dora. Well, your phone's about to go. We're running out of time. And we. uh, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you uh, doing what you've done tonight. It's... Uh, astonishing and important information and we're going to make sure it's available for many other people to listen to I'll have it up on the web within 24 or so and um, and we'll talk again yeah. and we'll do it again so thank once again from, from my heart deeply I mean it thank you so much Doro same same Michael thank you very much to give me the chance to share to share this All right, you got it. Uh, Doro, do me a favor and please stick around on the line for a second, even if you have to go grab another phone, okay? I will. All right, Mm -hmm. thanks very much. All right, you guys, there you have it. Doro Meinke, www.fire-heart.com. I hope you enjoyed the program tonight. The Boogeyman's coming up. We'll finish things off here with a little Joss Van Oost, as we've been doing all night. And uh, next week, come on back. I'll have Alistair Kinnear on the air with me. We'll be talking about neuro-linguistic programming, how to change behavior. Speaking of the devil. All right, and uh, for those of you out there who'd like a tip with regard to uh, initiations of sorts, there is, uh, as Doro pointed out, many, many ways uh, to to do that thing. And here's a, a clue. Five dried. All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. Come on back next week, MikeHagan.com, and this is Joss Van Oost. Is the board game? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Like above it before Trying to sell something But I can't make a score I ended up At a country yard sale Come home With a rusty old nail I'm riding On Highway 61 Don't come looking For me, baby I'll be gone Riding with 
61 Going down to Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee I'm riding with Bubba on Highway 61 Riding down for the Kennedy I'm riding on a Highway 61 Don't come looking for me, baby, I'll be gone That's the Quinta Road is coming down. The old Roxy is falling apart. This used to be the place with a grooving heart. That's the Quinta Road is used to be downtown. I'm riding on Highway 61. Don't come looking for me, baby, I'll be gone. Riding south down New Orleans Give myself a mojo hand I'm riding south down New Orleans Try to have much fun as I can I'm riding on a highway 61 Don't come looking for me, baby I'll be gone Standing on the crossroad Like old Bobby did before Trying to sell something But I can't make a store I ended up at a country I'd sell Come home With a rusty old railroad nail I'm riding on Highway 61 Don't come looking for me, baby, I'll be gone.